Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. One of the things that is used by elite athletes to quantify or, or identify potential overtraining is called a profile of mood states. You have to say a lot of sorries in the last few days. <laughs> yeah, like Mark Cavendish throwing his bicycle at his mechanic. Well, I was going to say. The, the body's not saying, actually, you know what, we're going to look at how much is left. It's looking at how much has changed. So the Tour de France of 2021 is over and Tadej Pogacar won the yellow as we all expected him to but how he did it and the ease at which he did it we will discuss. Mark Cavendish who came back from near retirement to then win the green jersey and uh, tie Eddie Merckx's record of 34 wins at the Tour de France so he also achieved that and Wout van Aert proved that he can climb, he can win a time trial and he can also do a sprint in the Champs-Élysées so uh, I guess that pretty much wraps up the Tour de France of 2021. Any, anything else to add Ross? <laughs> no but give the Tour a rating out of 10 out of I'm curious. Well this is controversial because I think there are some who felt because of Pogacar's domination that it was boring, but I thought it was actually quite a good racing tour. I think every stage was good, and I thought the first week was absolutely outstanding. Um, so I would rate it, if you had to give the best tour of all time, being 1989, I think it was, um, a 10, I would say this is probably a 7.5, hmm. something like that. I'd give it a 4. <laughs> would you? As low as that? Yeah, I thought it lacked suspense. Because, oh, no, no, really? Because, you know, when, when Pogacar won the first time trial and he put, I think, a minute 45 into Carapaz. Yes. Those were the two guys who you thought would be the best climbers in the race because they, they'd be pretty matched on the climbs. Yeah. But when, a, when one of them is beating the other by that much on a time trial, you think, well, the moment this goes uphill, he's got no chance. But Pogacar didn't win the second time trial, which was yeah, interesting in itself, wasn't it? I don't think he need, didn't need to. Didn't need to a bit. It's always interesting he to wonder to, like, though, the fatigue he? effect mm. there and uh, compared to the tactical. But I thought, it, I thought it just lacked suspense. And then, of course, he, he went all in on the first mountain day, that, that stage that Ben O'Connor won. No, no, it wasn't Ben O'Connor. It was uh, Dylan, Dylan Toynes, I think. Mm. Anyway, that was the day, I think, stage eight, when Pogacar oh, when he was chasing turns down the descent. That's right. Mm. He just destroyed the race on that day. It, right. it wasn't the teens was when O'Connor won apologies. And then you had a guy who was five minutes ahead. It was the Calderon. Yes. The Columbia. The Columbia, then the Columbia. Yeah. And now you've got five minutes at the end of like eight days. Yeah. And he's shown he can time trial, he's shown he can climb. So the, yeah. barring something going wrong with him, this race was pretty much over. In terms of the yellow jersey it was, yes, yeah. I would agree with that. And it was interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine, Cameron, who said, like, it's interesting because you're watching these guys. This was the day when, this was in the, the Pyrenees now, so towards the back end of the race, and you're watching attacks going off. And it should be interesting and exciting, but it, I, I couldn't muster the <laughs> excitement because he just felt so in control yeah. that he did, did what was necessary. And then, of course, by the end, I mean, when when that final day, remember there were four of them. Thursday. Clear. 
yeah. the final climbing day and Enrique Mass attacked with say 300 meters to go yeah. and he, he sort of looked at the other guys one by one he said are you going to do this mm. no one did so he said cool I'll, I'll do it and he I mean he just blew the doors off all of them and went by Mass as though he was peddling yeah. like a, a penny farthing and so that put it under that sort of underlined for me the dominance I, I don't remember seeing a tour dominated by one guy as much as this one yeah. in a long time Agreed. the first week was incredibly eventful the problem is that the events of the first week had ripple effects into the second and third so we lost Roglic unfortunately yeah. that's the one guy who I think could have given Pogaccia some competition yeah. um, in both the TTs and the and the climbs. Um, we lost to some degree Thomas and Port, so mm. you know the, 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 the so-called trident of Ineos was now cut down by <laughs> 67%, and really they were left with Carapaz, and they had a poor tour, like, let's be honest. Yeah, Ineos is probably their worst Tour de France in, even since the Sky days in mm. probably 10 years. Despite making a podium with Carapaz, I think. Yeah, but they, he was always playing bridesmaid. Yeah, mm. if that's more like um, page boy. Yes, uh, ring bearer. So, yes. So <laughs> sorry, we might have uh, destroyed that. Yes, maybe. So anyway, the 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 and it was interesting because like once once Thomas and Port had no real aspirations for the GC, they seemed like a bit disinterested in mm. doing the job because what again they could have attacked and Pogacar would have said, "Cool, whatever, do your thing." Although I have to say, one thing I found quite I mean amusing but entertaining was how deep. Um, Mikhail Kwiatkowski went on a couple of those climbs mm. and just blew himself to pieces and then expecting Carapaz then to take yeah. up the, the reins and just uh, disappear into the distance and he sort of looked around um, and most of the time Carapaz just said well I don't know what you expected me to do but I'm not going any harder than that and it yeah. was it was almost that I never really understood Ineos Grenadiers' tactic there because Surely at some point, Carapaz must have said, look, I, I can't attack off the back of this, mm. of Kirkoski going as hard as he can. Um, and, he, and he didn't. I mean, he, all he did was set up Pogacar. Yeah. Or so the Ineos tactics were interesting because a lot of people were questioning them. I listened to yeah. the... the un, even the even un, on Sunday when they tried to get away with five Ks to go with Kirkoski and Grant Thomas, I thought it was quite amusing. It was and almost I, a last-ditch attempt to get some glory. I wonder at some stage if it's not a case of they're saying, well, we're not going to win this race. We just we, we might sneak stage wins, but really what we want to do is just get on television. Yeah. And so they did the job of the tour leader. Mm. I don't know whether a yellow jersey team has ever done quite as little leading collectively as the UAE did this year. Yeah. In the end, when they needed a guy for Pogaccia, they had Micah, who was very good, on those last few Pyrenean stages. Yes, I mean, I mean, really, the domination was was clear, and I agree with you hundred percent that mm. uh, Pagacha certainly looked like somebody who was almost riding at sixty, seventy percent, and always yeah. had twenty percent more than anybody else. And yeah, I guess pr- in a way, look, probably ninety percent. Yeah, I mean, you're not winning a tour in third gear. No, but I don't think he ever needed to to really suffer. Yeah, and and yeah. it's just just sorry. One thing about Ineos is. For many years, remember, they were lauded for these genius tactics of putting six guys at the front at the bottom. They could all do six watts a kilo for different periods. So the first one was going to go for 12 minutes. Then someone would take over and do another five. Then you'd have someone go to a total of 23, then 27, and one guy left. Everyone Mm. said, what tactics are these? That's amazing. All of a sudden, they tried the same tactics this year, but they were dumb because they just didn't have the ammunition to shoot off the platform that they had laid. So it just goes to show you that you can lord the tactics, but if you don't have the physiology, 
no. to deliver on the tactics. It suddenly goes from genius to stupidity. Yeah, yeah. But um, I would like somebody to explain Grenadiers Ineos's tactics. To be honest with you, because a lot of the time it didn't make sense why they would sit on the front and just pace. Pogaccio, to be honest with you, half the time. Yeah, part of it, yeah. it's all they know, you know. They, they bought yeah. Kwiatkowski and um, Castro Viejo to do that job. Yeah. They're going to do the job, irrespective of the race yeah. situation. So, yeah, like sheep. Anyway, yeah, it's just your automatons, you know, and that's what they've done, yeah. so that's what they did. So of more importance, though, uh, was that, uh, and for those of you that have been following uh, Ross um, on Strava, um, you might have noticed that Ross had been doing a lot of riding in the last three weeks. In fact, what is it, 60-odd hours of riding in the last three weeks? Doing half the distance of the Tour de France every single day. And it's taking me a little bit of time to try and convince Ross that this might be more interesting to talk about than the actual Tour de France itself. Because, Ross, you've been through... <laughs> and certainly not been through a Tour de France, we know that. But not what you close. have not even close. But no. what you have been through is a small snippet or an idea of what it's like to ride like a tour rider. You're riding every single day. You're doing significant distances. I think you average what ninety kilometers a day for that entire time. I think in the end it's 83 if you add the time trials. Mm. If you take those out, it's like 87-ish or something. I think. Yeah, so it's a significant time commitment. There's significant fatigue involved. And um, when I was briefing Ross a little bit about his column that he does for Bicycle Magazine here in South Africa, I suggested that maybe you should write about his experience. So he did that very well. So I thought, well, here's a chance to talk about his experience on the pod as well because we know a lot of people who follow you on Strava commented saying we'd like to hear more about this, the pod. So I'm going to ask you the questions that you probably want to ask yourself. Give me three things, takeouts, that you could look back on this three weeks of riding, you know, 80-odd kilometers a day um, about what you learnt about yourself in this time, beyond the physiology. <laughs> yeah, like I don't want to be Dr. Full here, like and be all deep and I'll introspective. Give it, so give it a whirl. I'm going to stick to the physiology. Yeah. The first, just one small point is do, doing, it worked out to 1,786K if I add in the riding I did on the rest days, because I did those. Yes. Over 63, four hours or something like that. I don't know. Th- that's not... Um, that's not that amazing physiologically. <laughs> like we have to keep some perspective here. There are thousands of people who do that already anyway. Yes, there might so, be, but so most people won't do that. I mean, I, I ride and I thought when you decided to take this on that it was a significant challenge and I thought maybe you'd lost a week, but you didn't. You did the whole <laughs> thing. So I think it is, I mean, it's not underestimated. It was a significant achievement in, in, in my estimation as somebody well, that rides. Th- thank you. Um, I'm trying to keep a perspective on it, though, and I, and I am um, grounded in the sense that there are, as I say, a lot of people who do this. For me, it was a significant increase in both the volume and intensity. And so as a sports scientist, my um, psychotic break from a week before the tour in deciding to do this was going to create some interesting opportunities to get insight in on physiology. So I went yeah. into it. You were an experiment of one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. And I had half a dozen hypotheses because I had an idea of what was going to happen as I got progressively fatigued so and give, just give us a couple of those hypotheses that you thought what might happen well so the one is nutrition so you know four hours a day two and a half thousand calories a day on the bike plus the two thousand base metabolic rate so that's four and a half thousand calories a day how do you eat that much yeah. is, the, is one interesting question what would my appetite do and what should I do in response to it in order to fuel because you know the adage is you don't eat for today you eat for tomorrow Yeah. so I was mindful of that the other one is Three weeks like this, when you're accustomed to doing 200k a week, now you're doing 600, is going to cause overtraining. 
Yeah. It's inevitable. So how would that develop over time is quite interesting. And I think that's probably, certainly for the magazine article, that was my focus is because I think my my development of what's called overreaching, mm. which is kind of like the early stages of overtraining. You know, overreaching is to overtraining what a medium stake is to a piece of charcoal. <laughs> it's just mm. a different degree of the same thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I, develop, I think I developed it in quite a classic way. I mean, I noticed the, the muscle fatigue came after five or six days. Yeah. In terms of recovery not happening any longer. And mentally that's tough because you know you're not even a third the way through. Right, so this is, this. in answer to your question about what did I learn, the, 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 the main learning is that the way you feel after four or five days causes you to panic because you say, oh my goodness, I've only done 20% of this mm. and I feel like this. I can't do this any longer. Mm. But it levels off quite quickly and it becomes background noise. You know, that muscle pain, that fatigue, those aches, they actually just become part of the environment. <laughs> and what, you can so actually you realize keep going. that despite the fact that you've got muscle pain, you can still go and do that ADK the next day. Yeah. You start to realize that. Because at first you think, this hurts a lot more than it should at this mm. early stage of this three-week demi-tour, I called it. Yeah. But actually that becomes part of the, as I say, it becomes background noise. Mm. And you learn actually that you can tolerate more and more because it's not going to continue to increase at that rate. It actually plateaus and levels off. So that was quite an interesting and there is revelation. A, is there a reason why it does plateau? I mean, you don't get steadily and steadily more sore and more tired. I think you adapt because your, your body's got this adaptation energy, which is a diffuse concept, but it's there. And you adapt to it. You, you, you learn to recover just enough to get through the next bit. The next. If I'd had to do another week or two, then I would have failed, almost certainly. Because by the end, the Friday and the Sunday, the, those were very tiring, draining days, even mm. though they were shortish days. So I was certainly on the... But maybe that's because you knew it was near the end anyway. Well, there's that also. So that mental thing of anticipation, mm. and it's, it's basically pacing, where we're all accustomed to pacing ourselves for two hours. But now you're pacing yourself for three weeks and you learn to actually just accept a certain level of discomfort and change and you carry on with it. So that was that was interesting. I mean, the, the rest of it was overtraining insights. Mm. And as I say, I, it was it, it was fun to experience them and say, tick them off, you know. OK, first comes failure to recover. Because the thing about just just as a concept for people um, and hopefully this is where they can get some value out of my little testimony <laughs> is if you're training for performance you're constantly walking a fine line between overreached and overtrained because overreaching is when you apply a load training load or stress that is greater than what your body's accustomed to you will adapt to it if you allow enough recovery overtraining is when you then fail to adapt and then you start to get worse and worse so overreaching two-week taper you're better than normal you get what's called super compensation overtraining you're talking months potentially years to recover from so what you want to do is you want to achieve overreaching but never overtraining if that makes sense so that's the tension that you constantly invite on yourself if you're training for performance so what happens is so so six days in hmm. i'm no i noticed if i rate my muscle fatigue and pain immediately off the bike it's a seven or eight. Next morning, three or four. Mm. So I'm recovering every night. By the sixth or seventh day, it no longer gets better. <laughs> it's a six or seven waking up, and it's a six or seven off the bike, seven or eight off the bike. Right. So that drop 
is the first indication of overreaching. So if you, if you did nothing more than just simply keep a score, a training diary of muscle fatigue after my ride and the next morning, that would be your first clue. Yeah. Classic example. And that's what elite athletes do, by the way. They'll rate fatigue or exertion on the, in the training session and the next day. And you should recover. If you don't, early stages of <laughs> overreaching. And what is the definition of recovery then in, in terms of your your experiment? You're saying, because I'm not because I'm waking up feeling as tired as I did when I got back last night or mm-hmm. yesterday afternoon, do the pros do the same thing? In other words, they there is it's it's a it's a it's a perceived recovery rather than a physiological test one. Yeah, so that's why and that's the first the first sign is the perceived subjective one. Mm. I think it's the most sensitive one. Yeah. You just know when you're tired. Yeah. You know, and, and you accept I'm tired in the evening, but if you're tired the next morning, <clears throat> then you've, you've invited a problem on yourself. And that's normally the stimulus to say, actually, today's an easy day. But if you're in the Tour de France, you can't take that day off or the easy day. And so you then load, more load upon load, and that's why you end up being overtrained by the end. You know? Can we define what tiredness is in terms of its action? What, what happens when you get tired? <laughs> There's obviously muscle damage. Yeah, um, and in fact, in other words, what the muscle fibers themselves are broken down a bit more than yeah, they would normally be, yeah, and exactly. not having rebuilt. And there's an inflammatory response to that damage. That which damage, is, which is the pain. If you, yeah, which is the achiness and the pain, because what you what you start to develop then is inflammation and edema, fluid accumulation. There are chemicals that are released at the site of the muscle damage. They cause sensitization of the nerves, which then leads to further pain. So you end up getting this sort of systemic achiness, sore joints, for instance. That's a lot worse for running than it is cycling because of the nature of yeah. the muscle contractions, but it happens also for cycling. In hindsight, if I'd, if I'd planned this a little bit better instead of being more spontaneous, I would have gone the week before and had the creatine kinase, that's an enzyme that normally exists in the muscle, and it's only in the blood when you've got muscle damage. So it's a marker for damage. Should have measured that once a week because it would have been a nice data point. How would you do that? Through a just a blood, blood test. test. Mm, yeah. Just a blood yeah. test. So, <clears throat> so that would have been interesting to look at. The same with the inflammatory markers. You know, you could measure those and see what kind of inflammation have I invited on my body here. And you can test inflammatory markers, can you? You can measure some of them. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So that's, that's anyway. That was a missed opportunity. I mean, I'll you, have to do it next year. In your experience, I mean, having done this, do you think that it mirrors somewhat what happens in the in the Tour de France with? I mean, a guy like Wout van Aert or any of the other, I mean, maybe the general population of the Tour de France, are they feeling similar to you in terms of all of those physiological, metabolic things happening to their bodies as well? Yeah, I think so, because obviously their base level of fitness and performance is way higher than mine. Mm. But then the Tour is asking more of them than they've trained for. Mm. And just the same as my little campaign is asking significantly more of me in terms of volume and intensity than I'm accustomed to. So the the key is the relative load. Mm. What am I accustomed to and what am I now imposing? The, and the physiological response to that will always be quite similar. Yeah. The difference is they, they're doing it at a <laughs> considerably higher overall workload and under some psychological and sporting pressure. Whereas, yeah. you see, I don't have that. If I had a bad day, I just tap off by 10%. Yeah. They can't afford to do that. Because even That's the guys I, at the back, I mean, you might say, well, the majority of riders doing the Tour de France are there, not, nece- not necessarily making up numbers, but they're not all competing for jerseys. But every single person in that Tour has a job to do and needs to do that job well, whether they are finishing 180th in the peloton or 
10th. Mm. And that's why the attrition is so high. I mean, mm. I saw just under a quarter of the race didn't finish. That okay. seems high, doesn't and, it? And a lot of them, it's actually fairly typical. The first week was higher than normal. The second week had almost no abandons. And then the third week <clears> had <throat> a few for various reasons, many of which were going to the Olympics. We can get onto that now because yeah, that's one, a good of my, segue, one of my other experiences is the reason Van der Poel had to leave the race. Yeah. Because so so okay, so I said now the first sign of overtraining, this is the take home for listeners, is your you develop over time an understanding of how you recover. If that changes negatively, then you pay attention to it. And so your perception of your muscle pain and fatigue will be different from mine mm. and different from John's. Because we perceive things differently. But over time, if you measure it in yourself, and John measures his, I measure mine. We John's develop, the guy who works in the office, yeah. Yeah, we develop yeah. a pattern. Just so anybody knows who John is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we develop a pattern, and a deviation from that pattern is the thing you pay attention to. So mm. recovery of in, in muscle leg pain overnight goes down. That's, that's the first indication, which is certainly the first thing I felt at like stage five or six. Mm. The next thing that happened, which was interesting and also entirely predictable, is I lost the ability to exert power for short periods. So you know how we ride is pretty steady and chilled. <laughs> but then when we hit a 500 meter little climb, we yeah. go for it. Yeah. And you drop some watts for two minutes, yeah, maybe. A bit of ego shot. If not yeah. fewer, like one to two minute sprints. <clears throat> yeah. Those are the sprints that are responsible normally on a ride for getting you to max heart rate. Mm. You know, for two minutes, I'm gonna go as hard as I can. Maybe three or four minutes, I'm gonna get to the 195, whatever it is, max. What I noticed was by about stage seven or eight, I couldn't do that anymore. There's too much leg pain. And what's happening there is that my, my brain is actually simply saying no. I'm not going to activate the muscle because it's too harmful physiologically, hormonally, uh, metabolically, and muscularly for me to allow you to activate the same muscle as normal. So therefore, my heart rate can no longer get up because as the saying goes, the legs drive the heart, not yeah. the other way around. So, so in the first seven days of this tour, I hit 190 beats per minute, six, six days of the seven. And let's put this in context. You have a pretty high heart rate compared to most. So what so, would that be in terms of zones? Well, my max I hit in time trial one, which was the Wednesday mm. stage five. Because both time trials that you did, you did them at flat out pace. You did yeah, them as if they were time trials. They were, they were cool data points because there were two mm. time trials in this race. One was stage five, so minimal fatigue, mm. early days. And one was stage 20. Yeah. So that means maximum fatigue and uh, a lot of overtraining. And they were the same length, you know, the one was 13.6K and the other one was 15.43. So I could do those as comparisons to see how much that fatigue. Anyway, point is, max heart rate 202 in stage five. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So when I'm hitting 190s, I'm in zone five, pretty close to max. I could not get to 190 after stage seven or eight. It only happened twice in the next 18, sorry, in the next 15 stages. Sure. So six of the first seven, and then two of the next 16. 
because I just lost the ability to go hard for a short time. And that's a consequence of muscle recruitment as a centrally driven construct by the brain, just saying, no, done. But yet, on a submaximal level, you were able to operate at a fairly high level because, yes. in fact, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, your average speed seemed to be retained, it was similar throughout the three mm, weeks got, and I, actually I got, got faster. Fast, yeah, got The faster. first week I averaged 28, the second week was 28.4, and the last week was 29.1. Yeah. So I got quicker and quicker. Like and the courses were similar, so it's a fair... Yeah, courses and conditions. Maybe the weather got a little bit better. That was yeah. the biggest challenge, was the weather in the first 10 days. It so was just direct flat out, windows. power, you couldn't get the heart rate up. Mm. So Short, words, hard efforts. Not gone. good. Gone. But, they were but wiped long out. efforts, you were still been able to maintain a certain level of proficiency. Right. So I was like a car who'd lost its fifth gear. Right. Um huh. And so, the, the, so, so it's interesting then. You, then the reason I mention that is because so Matthew van der Poel wore the yellow jersey up to the first resto. Mm. And then he left the race because he has to go prepare for the Olympic mountain bike event. Now, had he stayed in the race, the physiological demands of the Tour de France would have been counterproductive to his mountain bike aspirations. The Tour de France is exactly the wrong thing for a mountain biker to be doing as close as this to the race. Why? Because a mountain bike race is going to be two minutes of very high intensity power, well above your FTP, then a recovery period. Then another minute and a half, super high power, recover. Then another two minutes, then recover. And it's just repeated on like that for 90 minutes. Yeah, That's the very thing that the Tour de France type riding takes away from you physiologically. So had he stayed in the race, he would have gone to Tokyo with completely the wrong preparation. But a lot of the riders that do do the Tour de France will be going to do the Tokyo road race, which is yes. w- literally a week after the Tour de France. So right, but the surely road, they'll be compromised in the road race. Well, remember, that some of them will be. So yeah. that's why if you want to find a favorite for the <clears throat> Olympic road race, you probably want to find a guy who didn't empty himself in the Tour. That said, guys like Pogaccia, Vote for Art, are so dominant mm. that they might actually be able to recover and still be better even at 98% because they're down two before the race. A guy like Roglic, if he's managed to train well, is probably the guy who's going to go to the Tokyo race in the best physical condition yeah. because he doesn't have the fatigue, but he's got the fitness that he carried into the tour. So if he sharpened that, he'd be the favorite for mm. the Olympic road race, in my opinion. But... But the difference between road racing and mountain biking is to win the Olympic road race, they're going to have to do a lot of climbing. Have a look at the profile. It's oh, mad. There's a lot of climbs. Some proper climbs. One of them is in the middle of the race, <clears throat> long, steep. And then there's a super short, well, a super steep, but shorter one. I think it's six and a half K, 10%, where probably the race will be won. Mm. That's going to be 20 minutes, right? So, so to win an Olympic road race, you need a physiological ability to go hard for 20 minutes. It's basically FTP slightly over. Mountain biking, you need to be way over FTP more often, but in shorter periods at a time. Yeah. So the, the physiology is quite different. The road race is about critical power. The mountain bike race is about that W prime concept. We covered this on a podcast called What the FTP probably a year and a half ago now. But but that's the yeah. So it's really interesting. Is that is Van der Poel needed to withdraw because if if he didn't, he wouldn't go to the Olympic mountain bike race with the necessary physiology to challenge Pidcock mm. or Scherzer or Hathley or any of those guys. Yeah. Mm. Just talk a little bit about um, your mood. I mean, what they talk about in terms of fatigue is how your mood changes if you're yeah. overreaching. I mean, did you notice any differences? So, 
with your mood. Your yeah, so, so, so if we're building our checklist, it's, it's the failure of recovery, number one, yeah. muscle aches and stuff, and then the loss of my fifth gear, yeah. inability to lift max heart rate as high as I normally am accustomed to. Then mood is one of the most sensitive markers. And in fact, that's why if you have a partner or a husband, wife, whatever it is, they could actually be your best guide to overtraining because they'll be the first people to say, why are you being such a cranky, irritable git? And you might not realize that, but that's what happens. And I did realize that that was happening to me because over the course, so this happened on about stage 11, 12, I reckon, is I started to get bothered by things that normally would be trivial. Hmm. A red light, when I was, you know, when you're cruising downhill at 40k9, you have to stop. That's annoying. (laughs) By the the second week, that used to make me furious, which is so (laughs) stupid, but that's what happens. Um, Being cut off by traffic, Hmm. uh, bumpy sections of road, making a turn and then suddenly feeling like a headwind just pounding you again. That, that stuff got disproportionately more bothersome. And I noticed it with, so for instance, because I, I had to juggle work, obviously, and things that work colleagues weren't doing, hitting meeting deadlines or whatever it was. Um, we were working on some papers for one of the people that I consult with and other team members weren't pulling their weight. That stuff would normally be casual to me. Mm. But now all of a sudden it was really bothering me. Um, other other personal interactions that I was having with people where normally I would I would be calm and level-headed and balanced. Uh, now I'm suddenly reactive, um, more emotional than normal. Hmm. This stuff was all, ha- and I was I was really aware of it, but like un- unable to control it. So short-tempered, irritable, a little bit anxious, a hmm. little bit more emotional than normal, unable to sort of step back. Hmm. Those are all, and that's why incidentally, elite, sleep affects the sleep. Yeah. So sorry, just on that. One of the things that is used by elite athletes to quantify or, or identify potential overtraining is called a profile of mood states or some similar uh, questionnaire where they would ask the athletes, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or one to five, well, how are you for irritability, tension, anxiety, and so on? And I definitely failed that test. And they, they're all subjective measurements that yeah. that test, are they? Yeah, and then- Because uh, there's no way you can actually test that with a test. No, no, it's subjective. Know, there's no mood test. This is the thing about overtraining is that a lot of it is subjective. There's no mm. silver bullet objective test. Although mm. the, the, the next one we can talk about maybe in a moment is submax heart rate. I think that's a pretty interesting one. That's objective. But, but yes, I, and then sleep was compromised. So the reason for that is that this, this, the constant persistent stress is overloading the sympathetic nervous system, your cortisol just levels. To, are, just tell us what the sympathetic nervous system so is. F- the sympathetic nervous system is the fight part of the fight the or fight flight. The fight or flight um, parts. Right. And then there's a, pa- sorry, it's the, it is the fight <coughs> or flight. The other half is called the parasympathetic, which is the resting state nervous system. And so the balance between, say, adrenaline and no adrenaline in your body compared to the the insulin and all the things that you need when you're calm and digesting food and relaxed that thing gets knocked a little bit out of kilter by persistent stress and there's cortisol and acth which is part of that whole hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and excessive stress for too long disrupts that and one of the consequences is disrupted sleep so i started (laughs) i started to wake up every morning at like three o'clock in the morning i couldn't go back to sleep I felt wired and buzzed, you know? I felt like yeah. I should wake up now. But you should be absolutely exhausted well, this so you is should the, have slept better, which I find the, fascinating. This is the great paradox, is when you are training <coughs> optimally, you will sleep better. Mm. And when you train too much, you start sleeping worse. Yeah, At the very moment that you should sleep more, you start sleeping less. Just because less. you're more wired, essentially. That's how I felt. I was waking mm. up at three in the morning and I was quite warm, I was hot. Mm. 
um, I felt like I was ready to exercise. Mm. I felt like I was in a little bit of an over-aroused, anxious state mm. at 3.30 a.m., you know? I was waking up and reading a book for sure. an hour or two and then eventually falling back asleep with fatigue. So that disrupted sleep is key, and that's why quantifying sleep as an athlete is mood in itself, doesn't it? So then yeah. that probably compounds it. So then I yeah. look at my interactions with some people over the last while, and I'm like, I was, I was just, a, I was a drama queen, and I was over the top, <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm going to use this as my <laughs> excuse. I'm not normally like this. <laughs> you had to say a lot of sorries in the last few days. <laughs> yeah, like Mark Cavendish throwing his bicycle at his Well, I was going to say, I mean, I would imagine when even the stress is higher in the Tour de France. So yeah, of course. The Cavendish yeah. incident where he's had to literally apologize to his mechanics because his bike wasn't working properly at the yeah. start of a stage. Exactly. But it is, a, it is symptomatic, isn't it? It's exactly, and it's exactly what you almost expect to happen. So, yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, I... And I'm not justifying the behavior. It's not nice when you're ill-tempered and irritable yeah. and cranky with people. And it's why it's important to have some perspective about this. If you're, not, if you're just a hobby athlete, then you've got to draw a line before you get to this point. But I definitely noticed with people I was more emotive and mm. irrational than I would normally have been in certain situations. So that was not ideal. Maybe a bit regrettable, actually. Just, just give us a, a cravings. And you said you had obviously the food. Your food. <laughs> tell us about yeah. your food. I yeah. know we've got to wrap this up, but just tell us about the food journey through this process. Yeah. So, so obviously I knew I was going to be adding two and a half thousand calories a day to my normal daily activities. Which is about two McDonald's burgers. Isn't it's it? a lot. I mean, it's, it's a ton of food. So that was going to be, for me, always interesting to see. And I, I had a plan to try and get ahead of that because you don't Which want to was? wait well, it was to eat five times a day. It was to eat substantially before the ride. I, for a change, took nutrition on the ride. As you know, I don't usually. When we do our two to three hours, I just have the coffee stop halfway. You don't even have a water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was deliberate about this time eating and drinking on the ride. Yeah. And then straight off the ride, it was a meal, a lot of carbs, protein, and fat straight off the bike. Big meal for dinner as well. I just try to increase so everything have, just by Just give us an idea of what you would have then as a post-ride. Big, big bowl of pasta some kind of cheese, feta, tuna, avo, right. in a big bowl. So you're, you're getting your protein in there as well. I was trying to mix both. So the, the protein-carb ratio is the key for the recovery. You know, you need the mm. one for the other. Uh, chocolate milkshakes. What, because the day. carbs, the protein helps slow down the speed of the carb, or carb absorption? What's, the carbs help assimilate the protein faster because what right. the carbs do is they increase your insulin levels. And insulin is a hormone that then drives what's called ana anabolism, building up, and that includes the building up of proteins. So that's why, incidentally, chocolate milk is such an effective recovery drink because it has sufficient carbs and the milk proteins to actually do this in the right, um, in the right way. So, so you so need the carbs to get the protein to be absorbed correctly in correct, the right yeah, way. to be right. used as building blocks to oh. build up that protein, that's the muscle again. So, and, then, and then for dinner, I was also trying to just eat more than usual, 40% more volume than I normally would have. Um, I had a lot of chocolate milkshakes or hot <laughs> chocolates. So I was drinking two or three a day. Really? Yeah. Really? Um, then, but then, despite that, despite my efforts to try and get ahead of it, by by stage twelve, thirteen, I just could not eat enough. Really, I had this appetite. I, the one time you met me for the last twenty-five k of a ride, I think it was stage twelve mm. or so. Mm -hmm. I got home like at two o'clock in the afternoon. I didn't stop eating till ten. Yeah. I cleaned the house out. I mean, I had nothing <laughs> left the next morning. I ate everything in the fridge and cupboard because I just, for some reason, it just got out of control. And th that stayed that way till the end. I mean, I would finish the ride and I would have my sort of late lunch and that had barely been digested and I would have to have a snack. 
The snack was barely finished and it was time for dinner. Dinner was finished and it was a post-dinner snack. After the post-dinner snack, before bed, there was something then. I'd wake up at three in the morning, I was hungry. Mm. So, for, yeah, the, the appetite really kicked in in a big way. It was really aggressive. and So that was pretty interesting. And so it's, it's amazing. The body's so clever. Like, you can go for 10 days undernourished and eventually the body said, you know what? You better start eating here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make it impossible for you not to. I mean, not without sounding rude. Um, what I find fascinating with that is that obviously we all know that when you, your fat reserves in your body are fairly endless, mm. um, and therefore, and you weren't, as you've said, when you were doing your rides, going out at any sort of a high intensity, a fairly low intensity. Mm. The simple question is: if you were operating at such a low intensity. Why wasn't your body then just relying on its fat reserves? And well, before me today, we would have a, a skeletal um, <laughs> Kenyan lookalike. <laughs> well, it, it is. It is relying on fat reserves. So there's no doubt that your oxidation of fats will go up if you do something like this. Yeah. And you are burning those fats. But but the body is still going to get hungry because the way appetite is regulated, the, the, the burning of fats triggers appetite because the body's trying to keep a balance. The body, my body knows what I've been at for the last like 18 months, more even. And when that gets disrupted, the body sees this as a metabolic crisis in a sense and says, actually, we need to start bringing this down. So even this though getting this you, under you, control. Weren't, you weren't dying of starvation, that just the fact that you were putting your body under the stress was then your body that was then reacting and saying, hang on, we make sure we've got to replace this. Yeah. Is that because your body is naturally trying to just protect itself in the, that situation? Yeah, the body is a, the body is responding to change, not the absolute level. Right. So there's no doubt. That's like, an as important I, thing to, to realize. As I sit here, I have enough fat stores to not have to eat for weeks. Yes. I need water. And you have definitely lost weight in the last well, weeks. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... The, the body's not saying, oh, actually, you know what, we're going to look at how much is left. It's looking mm. at how much has changed. And that's the thing that drives it. Because we become, right. there's almost a physiological baseline. And the, the perturbation from baseline is what drives the, the, in this case, appetite. And to some extent, that's why people struggle to lose weight when they exercise. Because Ex- extremely. Your body the, just reacts long it, before it actually needs to. It is the, the key. Mm. It is the key. The body wants to stay where it is. It's got almost like a metabolic inertia. And right. it's also the reason why when people do lose weight, they regain it so quickly mm. because you can force that weight loss through drastic measures, you know, drastic energy consumption, mm. less energy intake. You can shift that balance negatively and lose weight, but the body still remembers what the set point was. And then when you return to normal, the, yeah. so does body weight. So it's a real you struggle. You donut. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's pretty interesting. Fascinating. Mm. Do you, I mean, I suppose my final question about all this is that but, what's fascinating is that you did this. Uh, well, we, before, we did, sorry, yeah. the, the most interesting thing of all is what, the one I haven't even mentioned, and that's the submax heart rate gets suppressed with right. overreaching. I thought we had covered that, but yes, we haven't talked about so the, that. So the heart rate that we mentioned is that you lose the top end heart rate, so your max heart rate drops simply because you can't activate the legs in order to drive the heart and the cardiac output. But the, for me, the really fascinating thing, and I was a classic example of this, was your, your heart rate at a submax level goes down when you're mm-hmm. overreached. And that's really paradoxical because you think that if you're stressed from overtraining, your heart rate will be higher. And so when people see this, they often respond to it by saying, oh, look at that, my heart rate's 10 beats lower mm, than normal. I can go harder. Yeah. I'm fitter. I should go faster. But because that heart rate suppression is caused by overreaching, that's exactly the wrong thing because all you end up doing now is accelerating the process of overtraining. Makes right. sense? Yeah. So I'll give you the example is 
again referring it's so to this, counterintuitive to what you would think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is yeah. The, this is the one thing that for me was most interesting, and I knew it was going to happen, and it, it 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 played out in those time trials. So remember, stage five for fourteen k time trials. That's twenty one minutes or so. Stage twenty was a twenty two minute effort, and I did the second one surprisingly faster than the first one. So. The first one was 322 watts for the 21 minutes. The second was 335 for 22 minutes. So, in fact, higher power output. My heart rate was 10 beats lower in the second trial than the first one. <laughs> so, at a higher intensity, the heart rate was now suppressed and lower. And the reason this happens is because with consistent uh, chronic overload, our sympathetic nervous system, remember that's the fight or flight, actually becomes less able to release the hormones that are necessary to drive the heart. So this is a hormonal effect. This is a hormonal fatigue. Right. And it's, been, it's been linked to something called adrenal insufficiency, which is a little bit jargony, but what's happening here, they think, there's a few possibilities, but they've literally measured in overtrained athletes and they have lower levels of epinephrine or adrenaline, that's the hormone, in the blood in response to exercise. So you put someone on a treadmill or on a bike, you make them exercise at say 250 watts, they've got a certain hormone level. Three weeks later, hard training, same power, lower hormone levels. Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason, whether it's a, a, a sensitization, like something in the body's become oversensitive and therefore less hormone levels, or whether the adrenal glands that are responsible for releasing this epinephrine are just knackered, <laughs> to use the scientific term, yeah. or insufficiently able to respond, you now have less of this hormone. The result is that at, the, at a given intensity, my heart rate is lowered, stroke volume is lower, and cardiac output is lower. So this is a cardiac fatigue effect. Yes. What's really fascinating is that, because I'm still going at the same intensity, right? So the power is very similar, yeah, but everything in, else is lower. And in my case, the power is even higher, Yeah. but my heart rate, and I'm assuming, I don't know obviously, but I'm assuming stroke volume and cardiac output will also be lower. Yeah. There are papers showing that all three go down. I've only measured the one, but there's no reason to think that all three wouldn't have gone down. <laughs> so so then, then what happens is the, the body still needs the blood to the muscle and the oxygen. So what happens is the muscle just t takes more oxygen out the blood, which is really interesting. So the, the difference between the arterial and the venous blood's oxygen supply goes up because the body extracts more. It's quite clever that way. Mm. But the interesting thing is that the heart rate is lower. And, and so sure. if you are exercising and you're doing a hard training block and you see your heart rate two, three weeks after you start that block is lower than it was at the start, that's not fitness gain. It's too quick. Two weeks isn't, that's actually overreaching. And you should pay attention to that as a yeah. sign to back off, not go harder. And I saw that, and by the way. Because I definitely would have thought, oh, exactly. getting fitter now, my heart rate's dropping. totally think yeah. that. But, mm. but the other thing about it is like, so, and I noticed it's not just on the time trials. I do the similar routes because, you know, flat roads, whatever, right out there and same, similar conditions. The heart rate's 10 beats lower than normal at the same speeds. Mm. So this was the case across the board. And it happened from about stage 12 onwards. So it took just under two weeks for this, this phenomenon to develop. And yeah, it's a, it's a classic presentation. And the problem is I could, I could go harder and pick up the pace or the power, but then like the muscle fatigue would start to eat me. So you have to walk this balance. But the key point for listeners is don't automatically assume that a drop in heart rate means you're adapting. It could actually be the opposite. 
Well, that's a good take home. Yeah. We and know then, there was a couple of our listeners who were uh, they were doing a couple of challenges. I think one guy was doing a running every day, ten percent mm-hmm. of the distance. We be interesting to find out how they went to be. And so let us know what you if you took on a challenge in the Tour de France, whether it was doing what Ross did half the distance or half the ascent. We know some people did half the ascent. Mm. Uh, we know a guy that ran ten percent. I think it was of every single stage. So let us know what you happened to you during that time. What physiological changes you saw? Your mental state. I think it would be fascinating to report back on on those things. So one of the things that I always think is quite fascinating, having done a number of events myself over the years, and I remember particularly with the Ironman, um, you know, you train so hard, you have this big goal, it becomes a big focus in your life. After the event, the the doldrums hit. You suddenly feel like your life has no purpose. Does your life have any purpose as we sit here today, (laughs) two days after you finished? I'm not going to say there's no purpose left in life because that's heavy. But I did, I did feel this. I do feel the same thing. Mm. I remember by Saturday when I'd finished that last time trial and I knew all there was was like a little short 50Ks the day after, I felt miserable, really. Mm. I felt horrendous. Mm. And I remember that feeling because I'd done Kilimanjaro like 10 years ago now and had the same feeling for two weeks. I was, I was very depressed because this focal point that had existed for mm. months leading up to that was now suddenly in the rearview mirror and I didn't know where I was going. And so to some extent, that is the case. I, I was, as I got closer and closer to the end, I'd gotten so immersed in this project, plotting routes, working out, yeah. tracking fatigue yeah. and all this stuff. Suddenly I was Suddenly thinking, there's a gaping what? hole. So I would, I would have continued doing it, but at the same time I knew from the heart rates and the leg pain and the moods and the sleep that I needed to stop. Yeah. Otherwise I'll be writing checks my body can't cash anymore. So, and I think anybody so. that's done events will probably testify that that is probably true of any event, whether it's a, yeah. a 10K that you've been training for or an Ironman or a, you know something that you've mm. done as well. It, there's this sort of void that's left, and it's quite understandable. And you, I always think the best way to ta- take that on and to challenge that is to figure out what's the next thing. Like yes. You don't necessarily have to do the next thing tomorrow, but you yeah. can say, so right, as we've discussed, maybe, maybe Everesting is the next thing that you take on, but let's give yourself a bit of a break because once you have a goal, <laughs> at least you have something well, to work towards, even if it's recovery. Right. And I mean, even on the bike, like within the first eight days, I started thinking, this is cool. What am I going to do after yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I realized like that I'm, I, I need to bet better at climbing. My leg strength isn't where it needs to be. So I'm thinking I've got to start adding more vertical meters into my training, not just flat. Mm. So yeah, you start thinking like that. But at the same time, um, I know my personality type is also, I get totally into something in the moment and then I start to do excessive like future planning and then I take away from the moment, you know? Mm. So this is the suck. This is anyway, this is the Dr. Phil stuff now, but, ah, but to stuff. be mindful of the fact that actually just enjoy this ride mm. to do the next kilometer, not the next month's kilometers. So already. you're riding in the moment. Yeah. As opposed mm. to like future planning. And this is a, this is a mistake like that happens a lot. I mean, I've made it many times in other many domains where you just like, you start thinking about in August I'm going to do this, and then September, and then and actually just stay in July, mate. Yeah. Like you, you're cool right now, and right. it's, it's tricky balance you. because you always want to be thinking about the next thing, but you want to not detract from the present thing. So yeah. I'm still trying to work that balance out, and I haven't figured out what to do next, but I'll I'll have to come up with something because I it's been what's what are we now Tuesday? It's been two <laughs> it's been two days, and I'm itching to do something. <laughs> no, I mean I absolutely concur with you 100% on that and it it, it is it's it, it's I think all exercise whether it is 
playing a rugby match or doing a cycling event or even training for all those events you know there's always that mind games and I've read lots of books about sports psychology in the past and many um, sports psychologists talk about being in the moment whether it's in the moment during a rugby game whether it's being in a moment during a cycling training ride that you're doing on a Sunday not to think about the future in terms of long or short term even in a ride if you're doing a 160k or a 100k or even a 200k ride the worst thing you can do is start thinking about the last 10k's when you're 20k's in yeah. you have to be in that moment exactly. and just embrace it and enjoy it and, and there, so there's, there's some basic psychology in that because people do always talk about living your life like that to some extent exactly that's it. Yeah. and that's where like so if my first realization is that you can overreact and panic in response to the early change when actually you just got to like ride it out mm. the second one is be in the moment you know the mm. next pothole is the only one you want to avoid not the one that you can't see over the horizon there you go it's actually stupid as well because i could get a knee problem i could get flu i could get covid hopefully not and then all the plans I make for August, September, and October are derailed anyway. So why invest all this energy in like what's over the horizon when you're right here? And that's that's a life lesson, not a cycling one. Dr. Phil Tucker in the house. <laughs> yeah, you see, you drew that out of me. I was hoping not to say that. But I, know, I think it was some good stuff. Well, good to end our podcast today. So well, well done on that. I think it's an amazing achievement, and I certainly have got aspirations of maybe doing not doing 50% of the Volta which comes up in a, in a month or two's time but maybe a little bit more than the stuff that I did on this tour which was like basically zero but I think it's <laughs> I nice considered to take on the Volta I considered a 50% Volta well, and if it, if it wasn't so soon to. I might have done it but I just can't afford to take more time off work <laughs> you can get a good fight for a job someone's going to start saying you're not what, quite what good enough to be a professional cyclist just no. yet so, <laughs> find something else to do just as a last segue into that I remember discussing this with my son many years ago he was a very talented rider and I've had numerous discussions with pro cyclists about this not least of all Nick Lamini who was the rider that did the Tour de France this year unfortunately had to miss the cutoff during the, the big stage um, and Without doubt, the biggest challenge facing good riders, and I often think the difference between a professional top-end rider is many, many of those miles that you see those pros riding, they're riding on their own. And the difference between a good amateur and a pro is that the pro gets out there every single day and he rides his five or six hours, come hail, sunshine, mostly on his own. Wade often said to me, Dad, I love riding my bike, but even during the holidays, I got a bit sick and tired of riding. And I think that says it all. It tells you what how good the pros really are because it's not just physi- physiological, it's mental as well. Being mm. able to get out there every day and ride five, six hours a day. It's yeah, tough. Yeah. It's tough. No doubt. Anyway, thanks very much, Ross. And uh, for us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.